would please. Second Timothy chapter 3, if you would. Second Timothy chapter 3. While you're turning there, let me say it's a joy and privilege to be here at Berean Baptist Church. Been looking forward to this for quite some time. Appreciate uh, your pastor inviting me to come and share this conference uh, with you. It's called For the Faith of This Generation. And if you know anything about the generation in which we're living in today, you realize it is filled with doubt and skepticism and unbelief. And that is the world in which we are living today and the world to which God has called us to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. So winning people to Christ is a little bit different than what it was 30 or 40 years ago. And we have to be able to answer people's questions and be equipped to be able to do that. And that's part of the uh, purpose of this conference, as Pastor Lang was uh, explaining to you here this morning. I appreciate everything that he said. And uh, you've got a great pastor here. Appreciate his friendship. I hope you pray for him on a daily basis. And uh, he's got a big target uh, right on him. If Satan can take him down, he can take a lot of you down. And uh, if he takes you down, uh, he'll work at taking him down because that'll discourage him. So how about stay in the fight together and pray for each other? How about that? And uh, we got a great battle and a great uh, lot of things taking place. And we need, uh, we need some good churches across America today. We need a lot of good churches across America today. We don't have them, to be quite honest and be quite frank with you. And uh, we, we need to see uh, uh, just, we need a spiritual awakening across this nation and we need a revival in our churches. And uh, we desperately need those two things. I don't want to get off base, so uh, let me just get back to where I need to be. Uh, the purpose of this conference, I'll say just a little bit about the purpose of the conference. First of all, is to educate. And uh, we're, we're here to educate you in the truth of the Word of God. And to help you to be able to defend your faith. Uh, because we are facing doubt, we are facing skepticism, uh, we're facing outright unbelief uh, to the degree that we've never had to face uh, in America before. Uh, recently, I heard a poll, take it for what it's worth, that the fastest growing religion in America today is the religion of no religion. Uh, they took a poll and 22% of Americans uh, said we are not religious at all which if you're out going door-to-door visitation very much, you, you, find, you run into that more often now, uh, especially where we're at in South Carolina. Uh, we go down knocking on doors, and it's not uncommon now for us to get a, a, a reception like this. Well, I'm not religious. And so basically they're trying to close the door of conversation at that point because they claim, well, I'm, you know, I, 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 I'm not religious. I have no interest in religion whatsoever, so therefore I don't want to talk. Uh, along with 22% of Americans today saying I'm not uh, religious at all, we have 8% of our nation now claiming to be atheists and agnostics. And so if you put those figures together, when I heard those statistics a couple of weeks ago, I, my mind was sitting out, I was in a church service, and my, my mind was sitting out there, and I was figuring this thing out. 30%. That means that 30% of our nation today is in total doubt or disbelief of uh, the reality of God, the existence of God, the truthfulness of the Word of God. That means about one out of every three people that I'm going to, to talk to, uh, I have to come uh, with a different approach than what I used to have. Because they need answers to their questions, and it's not that I'm going to win them to Christ on the first conversation I have with them. It's almost like you have to build a relationship with people, 
and be able to continue to have that relationship in order to uh, introduce the conversation, let them interact back with you, let them ask their questions, you go back and, and give answers to them, etc. So part of this conference is just to educate uh, God's people, helping us to reach our culture for the Lord Jesus Christ. And the other part is equipping, just equipping, not just educating, but equipping. Uh, equipping you to be able to give answers, because First Peter chapter 3, verse uh, 15 if we had a theme verse for this conference, that would be the theme verse. Now, we don't have a theme verse, but if it were, that would be our theme verse. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So why do you believe what you believe? And can you give an answer for somebody that asks you, well, how do you know God's real? How do you know God really does exist? Or how do you know the Bible is God's word? Or how do you know that the Bible's not uh, full of uh, myth and fairy tale and contradictions? How do you know it's true and trustworthy in what it has to say? Now, these are all issues that we have to have answers for in the world that we're living in today. And throughout this week, we intend to uh, equip you with the answers. So there's three things I want to ask you to do uh, for the conference. And number one, Pastor has already said some of this, but I want to say it again. Bathe, uh, bathe it all in prayer, if you would, please. Okay? How many of you realize we're in a spiritual battle? It's a spiritual battle, and you have to fight spiritual battles by spiritual means. You can't fight spiritual battles in the flesh, our carnal means, and win the battles. They have to be fought through spiritual means, and part of that spiritual mean is prayer. And so if you just pray every day uh, for the conference, if you would, please, I, I would appreciate it. And I know your pastor would appreciate it as well. So just bathe uh, the whole conference in your prayer, if you would, please. I'm going to sound like the preacher now, uh, but forgive me, I've been a preacher for 45 years. Uh, and, and I just reiterate what the pastor said about, you know, doing your best to be at every service. And, um, you know, we're going to be here, Lord willing, unless I have a heart attack, get sick, something else takes place. But uh, we'll be here every time, and uh, it's only, only going to benefit if you're here to receive, to hear and to receive. So I just encourage you. I know some of you will have to work, and some of you won't be able to make it. Uh, I'm not harping on you about this. I'm just encouraging you to try to make a special effort uh, to be here, and to be here at every service, and that will be the, the most helpful thing for you, to come, be here, open Bible, open heart, like your pastor was sharing with you, and have something to write with and something to write on. Uh, because I think that will be beneficial for some of the things. You're not going to write down everything, but there will be some things that we'll give you that I think will be important for you to write down and keep with you. And then thirdly, I want to encourage you to invite others to come. Uh, just invite people. Invite your neighbors to come. Invite the, your co-workers to come. Invite, if you have relatives in town or the area, invite them to come to the conference, if you would, please. It doesn't matter if they're atheist. It doesn't matter if they're agnostic. It doesn't matter if they're skeptic. It doesn't matter if they're a Bible believer. It doesn't matter if they're a Christian or if they're a non-Christian. Just invite them to come, if you would, please. And, uh, and don't have this mentality that, well, you know, I'd invite them, but I know right now they're not going to come. Well, why don't you just invite them and ask God to work on their heart and see what happens, all right? Don't already have your mind made up to what would happen in an invitation. You don't know what would happen. And, uh, and I've seen many, many times that you make an effort to invite somebody to come. You know, they don't show up, but the Lord brings somebody else. 
to take their place because they, the Lord saw you out there inviting people to come and trying to get people here. So I just invite you to do those things and encourage you to do those things. All right, enough of that. 2 Timothy chapter 3 in your Bibles. Look down at verse 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Uh, here this morning in the Sunday School Hour, we're going to think about what we term the authenticity of the Bible. The authenticity of the Bible. Now, when, that's a big word. And when, when we talk about the authenticity of the Bible, what we have reference to is simply this. How do we know that the Bible that we hold in our hands here today really is the Word of God? So that's what we're going to deal with here this morning. How do we know the authenticity of the Bible? How do we know that the Bible that we hold in our hands really is uh, the Word of God? Uh, Let's pray and we will get started here this morning. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of being here. I pray that as we uh, begin this conference and continue throughout this week, Lord, that your hand of blessing would be upon it. Father, it's not that we're here and we think anything great of ourselves. Uh, Lord, we're nothing without you. You're great, and your word is wonderful, and our Savior is tremendous. And Father, may we represent you, the word of God, and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in such a way that you are worthy of, and deserving of, and honoring. And Father, I pray that you would help us to be able to share truth that would be a help to the folks here at Berean Baptist. I know Pastor Lang has a desire for his people to be able to communicate truth to the people of this community. And uh, Father, we would like to see a great lighthouse in White House, Tennessee, through Berean Baptist Church. I thank you for the light. It already is, but would you use this week to make the light brighter? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are plenty of people in our world today who believe that the Bible is an old, outdated book. You probably heard people say something on the order of, you you can't trust the Bible. You know, (laughs) some people just got together and wrote it and put it together. You, you, You can't really know that the Bible is the Word of God. And that's what we're going to think about here in the Sunday School Hour this morning. The authenticity of the Bible. How do we really know that the Bible is the Word of God. I'm going to give you three thoughts. Uh, Write them down, if you would, please, because these are three ways in which we know that the Bible that we hold in our hands really is the Word of God. When When you deal with this issue, first of all, you have to consider its claims. You have to consider its claims. What does the Bible claim for itself? See, this is the idea, the authenticity of the Bible. How do we know that the Bible is the Word of God? Well, number one, you've got to think about what does it claim. And according to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, it claims to be the Word of God, does it not? All Scripture, mark that in your Bible if you haven't marked it already. Not some Scripture, not a part of the Scripture, but it says all Scripture. All Scripture is given to us by what? Inspiration of God. So here the Bible is claiming that every verse, every chapter of the Word of God was given to us by God Himself. Every chapter of the Word of God. 1,189 chapters in the Bible. It's a lot of chapters, isn't it? 66 books of the Bible. 
31,164 verses. Every word of the Word of God was given to us by inspiration of God. Starting in Genesis 1.1 and going all the way through Revelation 22.21, what do I have in my hand and what do you have in your hand? The Word of God. And so when you begin to deal with skeptics and uh, people who are doubters and disbelievers in the, in the Bible, and they say, well, you know, how do you know the Bible really is God's Word? Anyhow, I don't think the Bible is God's Word. It was just a bunch of people just got together and, and wrote it. By the way, when they say something like that, they're really showing their ignorance of the Bible, okay? <laughs> to, to say something like that, that's, that's almost like, uh, well, it's just an, a human impossibility, okay? And I'll leave it at that. But... Uh, First of all, you have to bring them and say, well, what does it claim? Because most skeptics and most doubters and disbelievers have never really opened the Bible for themselves. They just sort of polyparrot the unbelief that they've heard from others. Uh, many times they, they uh, were introduced to it back at the university yeah. by the ungodly professors, uh, the Bible deniers, in our universities across America today, they are doing a lot to rob faith uh, from our young people. And, uh, and so they've never really seen what the Bible says for itself. So what does the Bible claim? Well, it claims that every bit of Scripture, Scripture is just a, a word that means holy writings. And it's referring to the holy writings of the Bible. So all Scripture... All the holy writings of the Bible were given to us by inspiration of God. The English word inspiration comes from two Latin words, in and spiral, and they mean to breathe into, or God breathed, if you would please. Uh, the Greek word in which the New Testament was uh, written, uh, it simply means divinely breathed in. So when God began to give his word, he did use people to write it down. So let's say that Micaiah was living back in the age in which the Bible was being written, and God looked down upon Micaiah, and God was going to use Micaiah to write some of the books of the Bible. So Micaiah, you know, he takes out his pen, he takes out his scroll, and he says, okay, God, I'm fit for the task. I can handle this. I can do this. I can write the book of Genesis. Is that how it happened? Absolutely not. It had nothing to do with Micaiah. Micaiah, if he was a writer of one of the books of the Bible, Micaiah was just simply being used of God as a writer. But he wrote as he was inspired of God, as God breathed into him the very words that he wanted written on that parchment. Look over in 2 Peter chapter two, or chapter 1 and look at how the Bible describes this. 2 Peter chapter 1, if you would please. The book of 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, speaks about this in verses 20 and 21. Notice in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, it says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation... For the prophecy came not in old time, now look at this, it came not in old time by the will of man. Man writing the word of God had nothing to do with their will. 
had nothing to do with, with them at all. had to do with God. That God had a revelation that He wanted to give to man. And He did that through the means of human writers. But notice what it says. Those holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That's inspiration. God breathing into man. So breathing into man. So that as He wrote the words of Scripture... He wrote the very word of God, or the very words of God. They wrote the words that God wanted written on that parchment, if you would please. We see an illustration of this over in the book of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 23. Turn there if you would please. 2 Samuel chapter 23. We see an illustration of inspiration in the life of a guy by the name of David. And aren't we glad that God used David to pin some of the words of Scripture for us, especially uh, the Psalms. Uh, Many of the Psalms were given to us by David as he was moved by the Holy Spirit of God. And where would we be without the Psalms, especially when we're going through hard times, difficult times? Where, where, Where do we turn in the Bible to find comfort, encouragement, and strength? To the book of what? Psalms. And here in 2 Samuel chapter 23, the Bible says this in verse 1. Now these be the last words of David. David the son of Jesse said, And the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel said, Now look what he said in verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord spake by who? Me. He spake by me, and his word was in my what? Tongue. You see the idea of inspiration there? God putting his word into that writer. So that writer in this particular case is speaking about speaking. He would speak the psalm. In our case, it was written down for us. And so God so moving upon man that we have the word of God, if you would please. So what does the Bible claim for itself? It claims to be the inspired word of God. Now we don't just have 2 Timothy chapter 3 to turn to. We've got all kinds of verses to turn to. In the Old Testament, there are over 2,600 references in the Old Testament alone concerning that the Bible was the Word of God. You see it in expressions like, and God said, and God said. You see that especially in Genesis chapter 1, don't you? In Genesis 1, and God said, let there be light, and there was what? Light. So God was speaking His Word. So you see that expression, not just in Genesis 1, but you see it in the Old Testament. You see the expression, Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. So what's that saying? This is God. This is the Word that God is is proclaiming. Uh, You see the expression, And the Word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The Word of the Lord came unto me, saying, That's an expression you see quite often in the Old Testament. And all those expressions are just confirming That what we have here is the Word of God. Now, fast forward a little bit. Go to the New Testament. Matthew chapter 4. What's happening in Matthew chapter 4? Anybody? Temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Jesus was out in the wilderness being tempted of the devil 40 days and 40 nights, one of those temptations had to do with some stones, right? Hey, if you're the Son of God, take those stones and turn them into bread. How did Jesus respond to the temptation? He quoted the Word of God, did He not? He quoted from the book of Deuteronomy. And what did He say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every 
word that proceeds out of the mouth of so what was Jesus affirming of the book of Deuteronomy? It is the Word of God. It is the Word of God. And the Bible claims numerous places. Look in the book of Jeremiah with me. Jeremiah chapter 20. In Jeremiah chapter 20, the prophet Jeremiah had gotten discouraged. Uh, I tell you, if there was any good reason for anybody to get discouraged, Jeremiah had good reason. That poor guy... He, he was put through the mill, was he not? And, uh, and here in Jeremiah chapter 20, he got so discouraged because uh, people were mocking him, may, people were making fun of him. They were, uh, he was in derision. He said, I'm in derision. And he says, Lord, I'm not going to speak anymore in your name. I just quit. I quit. If, you, if, if, if you've ever been a pastor, pastors quit. They quit on Sunday night, and then Monday morning they they go back to work. Get discouraged. Jeremiah says, I quit. But the Lord wouldn't let him. Notice, notice what he says here. In Jeremiah chapter 20, look down if you would please in verse 9. Then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name. But his, whose word? God's word. God's word was where? In his heart. As a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and, and I could not stay. In other words, God's word was so embedded in Jeremiah's heart that he couldn't, he couldn't not speak if he wanted to. He had to continue. I brought you there because I just wanted you to see what, it, what the Bible's saying there. It was whose word that was in Jeremiah's heart? It was God's Word. And when we take the Bible and we hide it in our heart, whose Word is it? Thy Word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. It's God's Word, isn't it? Not man's Word. Look up Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah chapter 23. And in Jeremiah chapter 23, here's, a, here's an interesting verse. I might say it's a, it's a neat verse, but I don't know if any of you understand what neat means, okay? Uh, and I don't know what expressions young people are using today. So, you know, I, you know nifty keen is, is out, okay? Cool. I don't know if that's still around or not. Oh, my, my, my son says sweet every once in a while. I'll say something to him, he'll say, sweet dad, sweet. I'm still trying to figure that one out, all right? But here's a really great verse. You young people, tell me what the expressions are today after the service, okay? Fill me in, Cassia, okay? Let me know what's going on. But here's a really great verse in Jeremiah. Look at it, please, in Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 29. In Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 29, look what God says. He says, is not my... My word like a what? And like a hammer that breaketh the rock in what? You know, man can oppose the word of God. There's no, you know, you, you can't force someone to believe something they don't want to believe. And so man can disbelieve the word of God. But the word of God's going to stand. It's going to stand forever. And you can even take someone who's disbelieving the Word of God 
who has a hardened heart. And the word of God can break that hardened heart. Man doesn't break the word of God, but the word of God breaks man. There's power in the word of God, is there not? There's power in the Bible. One more verse, and then we'll move on to our second point. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. So when you deal with a skeptic who doesn't believe that the Bible is God's word, 1 Thessalonians 2, please. Or they come away and say, hey, a bunch of people just got together and threw the Bible together, and so, you know, it's the work of man. It's not really the work of God. First of all, you want to ask him the question, have you ever considered its claims? And they're going to look at you and say, what do you mean its claims? Well, the claim, it claims to be God's word. Have you ever seen any of those claims? Let me show you some of those claims. So don't be afraid to open your Bible and show a skeptic what the Bible says. Because the Bible has the power to break the rock in pieces. The Word of God can dismantle the skeptic and turn the skeptic into a believer. God can do that. His Word can do that. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 here here's here's a great verse in first thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13 you say brother chris you say that about almost every verse well in the word of god great it is notice it says this for this cause also thank we god without ceasing because when you received the word of god which you heard of us you received it not as the word of men now look at this that's exactly what the skeptic's saying they're saying that it's just the word of men it's not the word of god So Paul is writing the people of the church of Thessalonica. He says, now when you heard the word of God, you didn't receive it as the word of men. But notice he goes on and says, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. So it's not the word of men, it's the word of God. You have to consider its claims. Now I know what the skeptic is going to say. The skeptic is going to say to you, if you try to do what I've just shared with you here this morning, they're going to say to you that you can't use the Bible to prove that the Bible's God's Word. That's how they're going to respond back. They're going to say, well, you can't use the Bible to prove that the Bible's the Word of God. And my response to the skeptic is, why not? Why not? If I wanted to prove that there's electricity in this outlet over here, I could use a tester. You know what a tester is? You stick it in the outlet and there's a little, little light that lights up and it tells you there's electricity in there. Correct? Yeah. So I could use a tester to prove that there's electricity in there or I could use your finger to prove that there's electricity in there. <laughs> you prefer I use the tester. Yes. But am I using the electricity to prove there's electricity there. And would they argue, you can't use the electricity to prove there's electricity there? Would they argue with that? No. Or if I said to you, Pastor Lang drives a Ford Silver 15-passenger van. I know because I rode in it last night with him. Prayed the whole time he was, I was with him. <laughs> I think we had angels on one side and angels on the other side. He pulled in that parking lot and he said, 
I'm parking over here when I back up. Just make sure we don't hit anything. I thought, that's a good idea, brother. I'm, I'm teasing while I was driving. But if I said, he drives a 15-passenger Ford, how do you want to prove it? I'm going to go out there and show you. I'm going to show you the van, right? I can't use the van to prove that he drives a van. They wouldn't argue with that, would they? Why can't I take the Bible to prove that the Bible is the Word of God? First of all, I have to consider its claim. Secondly, I have to consider its content. That's the second thing to write down. You need to consider its content. You need to consider its content. How do we know that the Bible really is God's Word? We know it, first of all, because it claims to be. Secondly, we know it because of its content. Do you understand that there are things in the Bible that if men got together and just wrote the Bible by themselves would would not be in the Bible? I mean, there's a lot of stuff in the Word of God that if it were the work of men men would not have included it. Uh, Let's take our Bibles and turn to Romans. I'll give you this, Romans chapter 3. I'll try to make this point quickly because I think we have a church service after this, don't we? I think so. Romans chapter 3. And you want at least least a three-minute break before that church service, right? Romans chapter 3. I'll give you this quickly because I think you, you can understand this. But you need to understand, you've got to consider its content, the content of the Bible. Make the point with them. You know, if people wrote the Bible, there's things in the Bible that, that people wouldn't have put in there. For example, here in Romans chapter 3, you know, we believe that the Bible teaches, and it's very clear that the Bible teaches, that man is, is totally depraved in the sight of God. You know, from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet, we've all been defiled by sin. To the extent that Romans chapter 3 and verse 10 says this, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not what? One. So the Bible here says that there is not a righteous person on the face of this earth. That doesn't set well with humanity. Verse 12 goes on to say, They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. So not only is there not a righteous man on the face of the earth, the Bible says there's not one person that qualifies as being good on this earth. That doesn't sit well with man. We won't turn there, but Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6 says that our righteousness says... The best that we can do is nothing but filthy rags. That's offensive to man, isn't it? So God says there's none righteous. God says there's none good. God says that the best we can do is nothing but a filthy rag. Jeremiah 17, 9, God says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately what? Wicked. We all have a wicked heart within us. Now, if man had gotten together and was just writing the Bible by themselves, would man have described themselves like that? Would they say there's none righteous? Would they say there's none good? Would they say that their best is nothing but a filthy rag? Would they say that their heart is deceitful and wicked above all things and and nobody can know it? Who can know it? You know, the next verse goes on to say, I, the Lord, knows the heart. He does, doesn't he? 
He knows the wickedness of the heart. No, man on his own would have never put those things in the Bible. Man on his own would never have put in the Bible that we need a Savior. Man on his own would never put in the Bible that that Savior is Jesus Christ and the exclusive Savior. No salvation outside of Jesus Christ. Man would not have put that in the Bible because people don't want to believe that. Man would not have put in the Bible that if to reject Christ and refuse to believe on Him to be your way to heaven uh, will send you to an eternal hell, to an eternal lake of fire. Would man have put hell in the Bible? The answer is no. Uh, most men uh, think of themselves like the rich young ruler. Matthew chapter 19, please. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. And in Matthew chapter 19, look if you would please, in Matthew chapter 19, in verse 16. In Matthew chapter 19, in verse 16, the Bible says this, And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? You see what he said? Matthew 19, 16, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have what? Eternal life. What do most people think about themselves? I'm not so bad. I'm not so bad. I, I don't deserve damnation. I haven't, I haven't killed anybody. Don't most people think that real harsh judgment is for those who've done really bad things, but not for those who've done good things? Rich Young Ruler was far off base, but he's a great illustration of the typical unsaved person in our world. I'm just, I'm just trying to illustrate that you consider this issue of how do we know the Bible is the Word of God? You have to consider its claims. It claims to be the Word of God. You have to consider its content. What's in this book? And if some men just got together and sat down and wrote it like you think they did, is that what they would have put in there about humanity and about mankind? Answers what? No, absolutely not. And then thirdly, let's think about its continuity real quickly. You think about its continuity. The Bible is a unique book. In fact, the word Bible just means book or books. It's a compilation, if you will, of 66 different books. So I'm going to give you something here about its continuity. And, and this is absolutely thrilling and amazing about the Bible. The Bible consists of 66 different books. There are 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. When you begin to research and realize the people that God used to write the Bible, there's, there's somewhere between 40 to 45 different human writers that God used. Now, we don't call them the authors of the Bible. They're not the author. Who's the author of the Bible? God's the author of the Bible. They were just human writers. God used them as they were moved by the Holy Spirit of God, inspired of God. So you've got 66 books of the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, 40 to 45 different human uh, writers were involved in this. These people 
were from various walks of life. You had, you had, uh, you had kings that wrote part of the Bible. King David, King Solomon, right? You had, um, you had peasants, just ordinary people. Peter, what was he? He's a fisherman, right? Uh, you, had, uh, you had physicians. Luke, the doctor, the physician, if you would please. Uh, you had philosophers. You had people from all different kinds of, of, of backgrounds that were involved in pinning the words. If you stop to begin to think about when the Old Testament began to be given, it, uh, it began to be given about 1,500 years before Christ came to the face of the earth. And we believe that the oldest book of the Bible is the book of Job. Okay? And so it was finished with the book of Revelation about 100 years after Christ. Okay? 100 A.D. Approximately. We're just using approximate figures. So about 1,500 years before Christ, about 100 years after Christ, figured out the span goes for 1,600 years. So the word of God was given to, given to us over a span of 1,600 years. Now, that does not mean that it took the writer 1,600 years to write the Bible, because it didn't. Now, there was a period of time between the Old Testament and the New Testament that we refer to as the silent years, where God gave no revelation whatsoever. That lasted for about 500 years. And, but from the beginning to the end, it took about 1,600 years. So stop and think about all this, because it's important for you to put this together, if you would please. Not only did they live over a period of 1,600 years, they lived in different countries. They lived at different times in history, and many of them never knew each other. They never met another writer of the Bible. You with me on this? Yet, as you open the Word of God, and as you begin to study the Word of God, there is one central theme running throughout the Bible. There's one continuity of thought. There is one harmony. There is one unity. There is one message that the Bible is seeking to communicate to all of mankind. And that harmonious message that continuity of thought, if you would please, is redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. Everything in the Bible, starting in the book of Genesis and going all the way through the book of Revelation, God had one thing in mind that he was seeking to communicate to this world, and that is you are in need of redemption, and that redemption is through the blood of my Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In it is like a red ribbon flowing throughout the pages of the Word of God. I don't care where you turn in the Word of God. Jesus is there. His blood is there. It may be in symbolism. It might be in what we call type, ology, if you would please. It might be pictured in those Old Testament sacrifices that were slain, all those animals. (laughs) But the ultimate Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. It was all pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at one last verse, and then we'll be done here this morning. Revelation chapter 1, if you would, please. Revelation chapter 1. Now, let me ask you a question as you're turning to Revelation chapter 1. 
How is that unity, how is that harmony possible if it was just the work of men? It couldn't happen. The only way it can happen is if you have one divine author of the Bible who is communicating to all of those writers exactly what he wanted written down. So that what we have is not the word of men, it indeed is the word of God. So in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5, notice the Bible says this, And from Jesus Christ, who is a faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth, he's Lord of lords and king of kings, is he not? Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own what? My friend, this continuity of redemption through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the one central of the message of the Bible, it didn't happen on its own. It didn't happen by accident. It didn't happen because a bunch of people got together and decided they're going to come up with the Bible on their own. It happened because God is the divine author of the book. It's that simple. So the authenticity of the Bible. How do we know the Bible really is God's word? We know it's God's word because of its claims. We know it's God's word because of its content. And we know it's God's word because of its continuity. Those three things demonstrate for us the authenticity of the Bible. So you share those things with people. Jesus said, it is the truth that shall set men free. And you say, but they're skeptical. They're unbelievers. They don't, they don't even believe in the Bible. doesn't matter. What sets men free? It's the truth. So you share the truth. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to speak about the Bible here this morning.